Just win Saturday. It's all need to happen for everyone to calm the hell down. And look what it did. Got that dub Saturday. Everyone calm the hell down. Hold on, wait. Hello? Yeah, no, I'm recording the pod. Hold on, is this thing on? Yeah, no, I can't hear you. Can you speak up, please? What? Kendall Browse is the issue. Huh? You, what? You don't think KJ's good? No, that ain't what you're saying, is it? You speak up, please. Yeah, no, say that again because I can't hear you. Yeah, I told you I was going to roll them Mormons and dub them boys on Saturday. God, it felt good to say that. I haven't said dubbed in a long time. Yeah, but Brandon Walker, your dumbass is wrong once again. We got close, but we didn't lose four in a row. We got arguably the most crucial win of the season. And it didn't matter the crowd, environment however many feet above sea level we were, and I don't care if they had 12 disciples on defense and Jesus as their coach. They weren't stopping us. Like I said, and boys got dubbed Saturday. That was the absolute best-case scenario W heading into the bye. Our first road W of the season gave BYU their first loss at home. 9-3 and three is still very much in the picture. Welcome back to Views from the Hill, episode nueve. In this podcast, we provide all information vital to the greatest collegiate athletic program in the country. Top two, most certainly not two, and that's the twoof with some cheese on it. In this podcast, we preview and recap weekly matchups, provide recruiting news, and updates on professional hogs across whatever sport it is that you may follow. Boys took care of business on Saturday. Honestly, it looked like they had plenty of fun doing it. And yeah, Pittman, in his presser, he kept those receipts for everyone out there chirping. It's time for everyone that said Kendall Browse is an issue just to find something else to bitch and moan about because that game just showed how valuable KJ and Browse are to this team. Before we jump into the recap of the BYU game, good award. College football on Saturday was absolutely nuts. Bama went down. USC went down. Oklahoma State went down. Good Lord. It's absolutely hilarious seeing Tennessee fans selling pieces of the effing grass from Neyland Stadium. Bunch of weirdos. But what is sweet to see is Bama fans bitching and moaning about a loss. They, they really don't realize how good they have it sometimes. Actually, no, not sometimes. They never realize how good they have it. When they get beat, the system's cheating them. They blame it on the refs. It's all the refs' fault whenever they lose. But you know what? Bama is, I think, last in all of the FBS and penalties, 131 out of 131. That ain't on the refs. Sorry about you. All right, BYU recap. recap. 
Caught it last week. Hogs are going to be too big, too fast, too strong for this BYU group, mainly on the on the offensive end. There probably wasn't a single Cougar that would have started over anyone we had in the same position, and especially if both teams were at full health. We all knew it was going to be a shootout, but the defense created the turnovers we needed with the interception and the fumble to pull ahead, and we never looked back. And that is exactly what we capitalized on, which we'll touch on more in a second. But in past games, Arkansas just – we've had numerous opportunities to capitalize on turnovers, mishaps by other teams, penalties, et cetera, bad snaps, and we just flat out haven't. And other teams have done that to us, and I think it's, it really made a big difference in the AM game, and you could also say that about Alabama. You know, it seemed like at one point in the game, the winning team was going to have to score 100 points. But after BYU took the lead 21-14, our defense somehow forced back-to-back turnovers, which gave which gave us a chance to set up Cam Little for a field goal and a Matt Lander score in the next possession, which all happened in the final five minutes, minutes of the first half. Gave us a 10-point cushion at 31-21 going into the half. Now that is capitalization. That's the capitalization I've been talking about for the past four to five weeks turned the mishaps and mistakes of opponents into points for us, and that was 100% the turning point in the game. Those 24 second-quarter points were massive. 644 yards total offense. 6-4-4. 367 yards passing. 277 yards rushing. 12 for 13 on third down. Damn near 8 yards of play. 52 points. And this is the offensive coordinator y'all wanted fired? This is the play calling we hate? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what I thought. Now, one thing I will agree on. That was 100% the best game Browse has ever called. But we came out fast. Shit, we only punted one damn time. And my boy Reed out there booted that damn thing. Punted it, I think it was, I don't know, 56 yards in the air. I, I know we're not going to talk about punting much, but look what happens when you get the best punter out there. I'm sorry. But everyone and their mom thought that we were just going to run into Provo and just hand the ball off time and time and time again. But we're all wrong. And, yeah, we still ran for 277. But Browse opened the playbook up and took us all by surprise, airing, airing it out as much as he did while we still accumulated our season high yards, rushing-wise. Mr. K.J. Jefferson, 29-40, 367 yards, five tutties. Call him the mayor of TD City. Outside of one missed throw to Bryce Stevens, he, K.J. was dotting up everybody. Easily his best game as a hog passing-wise, even outside of his numbers. He was poised, accurate, got the ball out quick, threw a great ball. O-line protected well all game, but the one play they didn't, K.J. showed us he'd been in a weight room because he's strong. Similar to LSU last year, broke about four tackles in the backfield, found an open receiver downfield for a big play. You, you can't script that. Can't teach it, can't coach it. That's just an example of a big-time player stepping up and making a big-time play in a big-time game. Ten different Hawks cut passes on Saturday, with Matt Landers finally showing up, showing out, and showing us exactly what we expected he would be coming out of fall camp, which is what everyone wouldn't stop talking about. He caught not his first, not his second, but his first three receiving touchdowns as a Razorback. Eight catches, 99 yards, three tutties. Love the production from him. Or hopefully it gives him more confidence heading into the rest of the season, a little bit more confidence that Kendall Browse has in him to keep calling plays for him. BYU had nightmares about tight ends abusing their secondary after last week's game against Notre Dame. I believe their, their Notre Dame had, or excuse me, I believe Notre Dame's tight end had like at least two tutties. He was abusing them. But, you know, Mr. Hands for Days, Trey Knox, turned those nightmares into reality. 
Four catches, 66 yards, one tutty. When Trey gets involved, this offense can really make life hard on defense. I'll give you all an interesting stat about this here in a moment. But during that 65-yard touchdown run in the fourth quarter, I think it reminded a lot of us of another of another number five busting through a hole and just flat-out leaving defenders. And I'm not talking about Rakeem Boyd. Rockets 130 yards away from breaking 1,000 yards on the season, and we still have five games left. That's insane. Honestly, that's nuts. How about the production of A.J. Green and DeBinion? Go ahead and pin the collector on the dub's name. That dude out here collecting ankles in Provo like the Nevada County Assessor does on late fees. Only reason why I brought that up because I ran into a big old debacle with the Washington County Assessor earlier today. That doesn't matter. But all jokes aside, this is one of A.J. Green's best games as a hog. 11 carries, 51 yards, two catches for 45 yards. And sure, you're probably thinking, yeah, those numbers aren't very eye-popping. Why was it his best game? But just shows how versatile he is, how, how more involved he is in the offense. He's got great yards after catchability, and he's, he's proven me wrong. I thought at the beginning of the season he wasn't going to get any – well, especially when Dominique Johnson came back, I thought A.J. was going to get kicked to the curb because they were playing Dominguez, true freshman, Rocket is Rocket, and Dom had the season he did last year. But – I mean, we're using all four of them, but mainly we're using Rocket, A.J., and Dominion. And A.J. being able to catch the ball is just more of a reason why you should stay involved in the offense. Same with Dominion. I love how well he can catch the football out of the backfield and how multidimensional our, our running back room is because Rocket, A.J., Dub, all of them can be integrated in the passing game as well. I mean, hell, Rocket really was mainly used at wide receiver in high school, which is pretty wild to think about. I'm sure that high school coach is probably kicking himself. I know we still have a lot of the season left, but it raises the question, is Dominique Johnson going to be the odd man out at running back? Who knows? Lastly, for the offense, offensive line was back on track, blocking physically, pancaking that BYU defensive line. I mean, we were running through holes the size of Mack trucks. Outside of KJ's one scramble, he wasn't touched all day, and he had all day to throw as well. And on top of that, running backs, like I said, had more than enough room to run. Shout out to them boys in the trenches. Y'all protect the pretty boys, and you know it. Defensively, hey, that boy, I've been saying Hudson Clark, 17, is not the problem. Honestly, he's been our probably our best defensive back this season. He's 100% the most versatile we have that plays right now. When, when Slusher's healthy, it's Slusher. And, yeah, you could say Catalan, but I'm not counting him because we haven't had him in so long. Going from corner to safety, dude – Somehow, which is one co-SEC Defensive Player of the Week. I'm not saying how for him winning the award. I'm saying how for it being co again. We, I swear to God, Arkansas players can't ever win an award without a co being next to it. But yeah, HUD, like I said, was co-SEC Defensive Player of the Week, and he's only played safety for two games. Posted 11 tackles, one fumble recovery, one INT. Have yourself a day, HUD. 17, like I said, ain't the problem. Honestly, I think without some of the bullshit P.I. calls, BYU only scores around 24 points. Some of the softest P.I.s I've ever seen. And what's stupid is that those were SEC refs on Saturday. You think they were going to let them play a little bit. I know there's P.I. every play, but good Lord. They were calling some parochial league shit out there. (sighs) Still got to clean those things up, though. But overall, defensive backs, we need to buy more than anything. We need Slush, Jaden, and Kari back badly because we're getting flat-out torched on Saturday through the air. And by we, I mainly just mean Simeon Blair because it became pretty evident early on in the game that they were picking on him. Whether it be a 15-yard out route, dig, vertical route, you freaking name it. 15 was doing a lot of chasing on Saturday. 
all in all, the buys the buys best. We need it. The buy, it's going to be best for our defense mainly, just to get healthy, clean things up before we head to Auburn. Oh, sorry, before I almost cut that segment off. A couple of interesting stats about the football team. I think I got about eight or nine here. This Danny West did this earlier in the year, and I read, I read off some of them, and he put a a segment out about it on twenty four seven. So I thought I'd give it a read and share it with y'all. Rockets got eight rushing touchdowns this season through seven games. The last Razorback to score at least 10 rushing touchdowns in a season was Raleigh Williams in 2016, who had 12. Yeah, that record's getting broken. 2016 was also the last season where Arkansas had two players reach 40 catches in the same season with Drew Morgan, who had 65, and Keon Hatcher, who had 44. Jane Hazelwood is 31, and Landers has 25, and so they probably have a good chance to end that streak this season. Another cool thing about Hazelwood, he already has more yards seven games into his career at Arkansas than he did all of last year at Oklahoma, and he was their leading receiver in yards. That's pretty wild. Pretty wild to think about. Dude's a dog, been saying it for a while. Hud, Big Hud Island. He's got eight pass breakups this season. It's good for third in the SEC. How is that good for third in the SEC? But anyway, it's the highest total by any hog in the season since Jock was McClellan in, in uh, 2018 when he had seven through 12 games, but Y'all remember that guy, Jacquez McClellan? That dude was ass. I mean, dude said he could lock up Julio and he's getting cooked by J.D. White in practice every single day. No just disrespect to J.D., but dude ain't Julio. I think we all know that. Reed Bauer, averaging 50 yards a punt through his first four attempts this season. Dog. My point exactly. In the 23 seasons since 2000, Arkansas started 1-3 or worse in SEC play 17 times. Four of those seasons included two and two starts. Only by Petrino, who's three and one in twenty eleven, and Houston Nutt, four and zero in 06, had winning records for the first four SEC games in the year. That freaking blows to hear. Oh, this next stat ain't gonna help either. The next two really aren't. But Arkansas yeah, Arkansas's defense has allowed twenty eight plays of thirty yards or more this season, which ranks last in the SEC, is eight more than the next closest team, which is freaking Vanderbilt. Now, reading that sounds like eating wet cardboard. D line's gotta wake up. We recorded twenty sacks through our first four games of the season. We've only had one in the last three games in tooting, zero in two of them. But somehow we still lead the SEC in sacks. We we got to get pressure on quarterbacks the rest of the season, or we're not going to be 9-3. That's just plain and simple. Poo Paul. Uh, Poo Paul is picking up a lot of fans this year for his ability to hit people, fly around the football, but he's fifth on the team in tackles with 25, and he's only taking limited time. Uh, yeah, you can say this is going to be pretty good for us. Over the last three seasons, Arkansas is 6-2, and two, where Trey Knox has at least three catches. Feed Mr. Petco the ball. Our offense is so much more dynamic when he gets involved. Two minutes in, Arkansas still looking for their first point. Williams will get it for him. Jalen Williams. Think about it and try it from the same spot. This one rims out and Williams will clear it. He's doing the Razorbacks a favor if he stays out there all the time. He'll be drawing fouls. Note doubled inside and still scores. Second leading score in the SEC, J.D. Note. Just under 19 a game for J.D. overall, and even better than that in the SEC action. Here's Brooks, had it blocked. And Williams will get it ahead to Note. Note deep. Got it! Oh! 
Early timeout by John Calipari. Alrighty, recruiting updates. We're not going to do football because all we've been talking about is football for what seems like forever. But when early signing day comes up, that's when we're going to do a football recruiting only podcast. But we're going to touch on basketball, baseball, and softball recruiting today because there's been some big news in all three sports. So first, we're going to start off with basketball. Arkansas currently has one commit in the 2023 class, which is five-star Layden Blocker. Played at Lidart Christian. Shout-out to the Warriors. Shout-out Jared – not Jared Arnold. Gary Arnold. Oh, well. Blocker committed to the Hogs late this summer. Most of y'all know at the end of his AAU season. And went mildly viral after taking Bronny James off the dribble, put one on his head top at Peach Jam this summer. After he committed to Arkansas, there really hadn't been much news on Blocker since he's no longer taking visits, which is expected. He's currently at the U- at he's currently at the USA Basketball Junior Team minicamp, and he's turning heads there. Per twenty four seven Sports, Blocker emerged right away on Saturday, not just because he's probably the most explosive overall athlete in the field, but because he set the tone with how hard he's willing to play. He maintained his dominance on. He maintained his dominance going to the next day on Sunday. Arkansas commit was making plays defensively, creating pace in the open floor, leading breaks, finishing hard above the rim with both hands. He also made a nice couple passes, went in attack mode as well, getting the defense to collapse before spraying it out to shooters. The fact that he is young for his grade and doesn't turn 18 until next summer, which is when he's about to enroll at Arkansas, only adds to the intrigue of blocker. Dude's going to be great at Arkansas. Another solid get from the must bus, and hopefully he isn't the last five-star pledge to the Hogs in that class. Now for the most important, who people probably care the most about, Mr. Ron Holland Jr. Five-star, 684 from Duncanville, returned to Arkansas for another visit during the red-white scrimmage this past Sunday, and he initially visit, visited Arkansas back in June. <coughs> Holland's ranked 12th nationally and uh, number one in the state of Texas. His top five includes Arkansas, UCLA, Texas, Kentucky, and the G League at night. He's visited all schools, but he's been circling back to most of his contenders for a second look at practices with his family. Excuse me, Holland's mom tweeted this last week. It's fall break, great weekend, full of information. This week we'll revisit schools just to watch a practice, nothing more, nothing less. Although we may not get to visit all four schools, all have a great chance at landing Ron. You can't predict the unpredictable. Honestly, Ron doesn't do a lot of talking. It's mainly his mom who's tweeting stuff, which I kind of think that would be annoying, but, you know, to each their own. But Holland was at UCLA on Tuesday, took an unofficial to Texas the next day, but then Arkansas this weekend. He will also be attending the Arkansas-Texas game later this month in Austin on October 29th. Holland claims he'll wait until spring to make his decision, but Eric Bossy, who's the 24-7 sports director of basketball, excuse me, he said that, quote, Holland is making the type of moves typically seen from a prospect on the verge of a commitment very, very soon, end quote. Holland speaks very highly of Arkansas. He said in an interview that they're, that Arkansas coaches are saying that they've got NBA-level stuff. They break their plays down statistically like NBA coaches do at their facility. They train like NBA players. They also recover like NBA players, and that also goes for any other college that I've been to, <clears throat> but their big message to me is that they that they can get me prepared for the NBA, which honestly is not wrong. I saw this quote from Steve Kerr 
last year. It might have been the playoffs or towards the end of the regular season whenever Moses Moody started to get a lot more minutes for the Warriors. And Steve Kerr told the media when he was asked about Moses playing early on in his rookie campaign that Arkansas prepared Moses for the NBA. Shoot, you, I mean, the jump in development from his first day at Arkansas to his first day in the NBA, you could tell that Musselman prepared him well and the rest of our coaching staff, and this is exactly what Ron Holland needs to hear. Arkansas has more than just one tie to Ron Holland. His high school teammate was Anthony Black in Duncanville, and he ran the Nike EYBL circuit with Jordan Walsh. Hawk coach has been at Duncanville several times to see him since the recruiting period opened last month. And Arkansas initially offered Ron in June of 2021. So, yeah, he's been offered for a long time, <coughs> since before AB even committed to Arkansas. Holland was also a part of the high five line as the Hogs round of the floor called the Hogs, sat in on the pregame speech of Ronnie Brewer Jr. And rumor has it that numerous Ron Holland fatheads were at the game. And also, which I think is most important, the Hunts were in attendance and they were sitting with them at the game. <clears throat> Curtis Wilkerson believes Holland's going to be a hog due to how Holland visited Arkansas twice, and the visit went perfectly according to the coaching staff. But similar to Jordan Walsh, Holland is likely going to choose between Arkansas and Texas. Eric Bossy believes that Texas is where Holland is headed, but this was before his visit to Arkansas. The only reason why Texas is saying that is because everyone keeps mentioning, oh, it's either UCLA or Texas, or it's either Texas or Arkansas. And there's one common denominator there that Texas is still in the mix. But everyone also said that about Jordan Walsh. So who knows? Only time will tell. I got faith that Ron's going to be a hog. Next is Bay Fall, who's the nation's number one center, 11th ranked overall high school prospect. He's got numerous crystal balls to the Razorbacks and recently visited during the Alabama football game, which went very well according to sources. But my only downfall to this and argument to it is that for how well the, the visit quote-unquote went, um, it didn't end with a commitment, which, depending on how you look at it and who you talk to, it could be a good or bad thing. But I think if a visit goes that well and you got all those crystal balls to Arkansas, I would probably expect to commit out of that once he left that visit because that was a big game, a big recruiting weekend for all sports. But what also worries me is that uh, Bay Falls' final visit is to Auburn before he is slated to make his commitment. And... This visit just so happens to be when Arkansas is playing at Auburn on October 29th. Something interesting to think about. This is pretty interesting, too, because Arkansas plays Texas in an exhibition basketball game in Austin on October 29th. Ron Holland's going to that game. You you could think, like, oh, he's going to decide at that ex- exhibition game. I hope he doesn't. I hope he doesn't think that way because that's stupid. <clears throat> you could also turn around and say the same thing about Bay Fall watching Arkansas and Arkansas and Auburn play while he's on his Auburn visit and him comparing both visits and whatnot. But I don't think that's the case. That's going down a rabbit hole. Fall also visited Rutgers and Seton Hall prior to coming to Arkansas, but it's likely going to come down between Arkansas or Auburn for the big man. I think Fall's going to wind up a hog at the end of the day, but who knows nowadays with stuff. You see kids flipping all the time. Next is, I think I'm saying this right, Asane Diop. Diop is teammates with Bay Fall. He's ranked 91st in the country, and he's the 12th-ranked center. Some believe that these two are probably going to be a package deal, and Arkansas is one of the schools open to taking them on as a package deal with both Diop and Fall. Diop's done with visits completely, but Fall is not. He's visiting Auburn on the 29th, like we just talked about. But that's also scary because Auburn's not interested in the same Diop at all. I still believe Diop's a hog, and same with Fall, but still rubs me the wrong way that Fall is visiting Auburn 
this late in the recruiting season before his commitment. Next, we got Trenton Flowers. He's a 2024 um, recruit. He's a Ford, ranked top 25 nationally by 24-7. He added the Razorbacks to his top 13, and I know, I know, kids on Twitter nowadays dropping, like, oh, top 64, coming soon. Thanks all the teams for recruiting me. Please respect my decision. Like, kid, we don't give a shit. Just give us your top five. Let's move on. But he's a five-star. His list is a bunch of big-time schools, Arkansas, OU, Creighton, North Carolina, Virginia Tech, Florida State, Louisville, Oregon, Georgetown, KU, Bama, and Kentucky. He's already visited OU, Louisville, Creighton, UNC, Virginia Tech, and Georgetown this year. Keith Smart, however, was out to see him last week. Lastly, for basketball recruiting, we got Jackie Howard. This kid, I believe, is a 2025, but he's a four-star, small forward, put Arkansas in his top eight, along with Kentucky, Kansas, Auburn, Florida State, Texas, Georgia Tech, and Georgetown. His decision will come on November 20th. I'm kidding. He's a 2024. Zach Fly wins it anyways. That one trip left. Base hit. Arkansas is headed back to Omaha. Alrighty, next we got the Omahawks recruiting update on baseball. Razorback baseball reloads like we do every year. We have the nation's number three overall recruiting class for 2023. In fact, it was named third best late in September, but we got two two more commits after that, which likely raises our position. DVH has landed 11 top 100 recruits to commit to Arkansas this year, which is the most we've had since 2021, where we had seven. God, 11's a ton. Holy crap. This is the fifth straight top five class, along with being in the top 12 each year since 2016. And we've been outside the top 20 just once since Perfect Game started ranking classes in 2011. But what's funny about that is that the 2015 class was ranked 43rd by Perfect Game, but it provided the core of Arkansas's national runner-up team in 2018, which had Grant Cook, Eric Cole, Blaine Knight, Casey Murphy, Isaiah Campbell, Barrett Lowski, Jake Reindahl, and Cody Scroggins, and some dude that we all know by the name of Kevin Copps. That's an absolutely loaded class. But, you know, it just shows the development that we have here at Arkansas. Tate recruits who, who aren't very highly recruited or highly ranked as guys we normally get, and we turn them into the, get the players they are now. I mean, half those dudes are in minor league systems, and um, let's see, are any of them in the MLB? No, they're not. But... A lot of those guys are in minor league systems right now. So player development's amazing at Arkansas. I think we all know that. But we have 23 commits in the 2023 class, which is one of the larger classes for the Razorbacks. But Razorbacks are recruiting heavy in in the pitching department. And with a lot of middle infielders, we have six shortstop commits. It's likely the case to these shortstops having the ability to play numerous positions in the infield. Similar to how we saw Peyton Stovall last year, came in as a middle infielder, we were able to flex him to first base. But Arkansas's top prospect is shortstop Aiden Miller out of Trinity, Florida. He's a big kid, 6'2", 205. He's an athlete. He's got outstanding two-way ability. He's got high-level tools across the board. He has fast hands, can hit for power, average, is great situationally. Ball jumps off his bat. He's a Jackie Robinson MVP winner. DVH's two most recent commits, the first one is Nazan Zentello, I believe I'm saying that right. He's ranked as the perfect game's 52nd overall 
prospect in the third best third base, excuse me, the third best third baseman in the 2023 class. He was also named at the MLB Develops MVP of the Breakthrough Series back in June. Zantella was originally a Miami Hurricane commit. Looks like Jalen Battles Jr. headed to the hill. Lastly, yeah, I believe this is the last commit that we have. The most recent one. His name is Kendall George. He's an outfielder, and he committed one day after Zantello. He's a 2023 outfielder. He's one of the nation's best in the outfield. He's a great athlete. Recently helped Team USA baseball 18 and under team to the 18 and under World Cup gold medal game, and he had three doubles. He went through four in that game. He's got top level speed, a six one eight sixty yard dash, which is freaking flying. That's honestly the equivalent to running a sub four three forty yard dash. Dude's moving. With spring around the corner, look for look for more news on the Omaha's to be available on this podcast. This one is hit well to right center field. And- All righty, we're staying on the diamond, but we're going over to Bogle Park. After back-to-back SEC regular season championships, 2022 SEC tournament champions, top five national seed and a super regional appearance, knocking on the door to a trip to Oklahoma City, which are all program first. Back-to-back SEC Coach of the Year, Courtney Diefel, only returns three players from the 2021-2022 softball team. And this year she'll have around 9 to 10 newcomers, with the majority of them coming from the nation's top recruiting class in 2022. Along with those freshmen, she got transfer, transfer portal additions from Duke and South Dakota State. Razorbacks got a lot of new faces around the building, but with lots of talent as well. Since the 2022 class is already on campus, we'll do a deeper dive into softball season closer to their start. But Coach Dyfel and her staff have not been quiet. They've landed five commitments in the class of 2024 already with the number three, five, 14, and 28 ranked prospects in the country, along with an NSA addition, and here they are. We're going to start with the NSA addition. Her name is Ava Carter. She's at Green County Tech outfielder. She was offered by the Hogs on September 15th, making her official pledge to the Razorbacks on October 1st. Carter added that the staff made her feel at home, and she fell in love with NWA. She helped Green County Tech to a 27-5 and 1 record last season and a state runner finish. She finished the season batting 536 with a 643 on base percentage, slugging percentage of 821, two bombs, 33 ribbies, and 25 stolen bases. Next is Ramsey Walker. She's the 14th overall prospect in the country via extra innings. Walker follows her dad, Clint Walker, to the hill where he played baseball from 1994 to 1996. Walker, similar to Ava Carter, fell in love with the facilities at NWA overall on her visit. She's originally from, I believe, Bossier City, Louisiana. She hit 553 on the season last year with nine bombs, 31 ribbies, and one back-to-back Louisiana State titles. Now, these next three are all travel ball teammates, and they come as a trio package, which is pretty cool that we got them all. The first is the most highly touted. Her name is Ella McDowell. McDowell is one of three recruits. Like I said, she's travel teammates with Cameron Harrison and Ashton Reichert, I believe that's her name, and we'll get, to that. we'll get to those two in a second. But she's ranked as the third overall prospect in the class of 2024. She had one hell of a summer, hit 453, 13 bombs, 62 hits, 49 ribbies, only struck out five times. That's pretty freaking impressive. Good award. 49 
RBIs in the summer, 13 jacks. She's she's a five-tool player, understands the game at a level way beyond her years. She shows with her ranking of being third overall in the country. It's pretty funny hearing stories about how Tennessee was so butthurt that we landed her that they proceeded to not talk trash to her but say, like, oh, we'll see you on the field. Like, All right, we'll see you on the field. Probably whoop your ass like we did last year. All right, Cameron Harrison – Along with Element Dow, made her pledge to the made her pledge to the Hogs this fall. She's a right-handed pitcher. Was named the Texas Fast Pitch, the TFL Player of the Summer. This summer, fifth overall prospect in 2024, according to Extra Innings, posted an ERA of .871, throwing over 75 pitches or throwing over 75 innings in the month of June. She went eight and zero with 107 strikeouts. Next is Ashton Reichert, along with McDowell and Harrison. She also committed to the Razorbacks shortly after her visit to the Cincinnati football game with Harrison and McDowell. Coach Pittman made sure to greet the three during his pregame before continuing on with his pregame activities, which honestly shows his utmost respect for Coach Courtney Diefel, which he's talked about a lot in interviews, um, press conferences, things like that. He has a lot of respect for, and there's just a lot of mutual respect there. They help each other out. Reichert's the 28th overall prospect in the class of 2024 via extra inning softball. Is in his coming off a of summer where she hit 450 with an OPS of 1.092. All in all, Dyfus changed the program entirely with the tra- with the trajectory of the program exceeding expectations year after year, and that begins with recruiting, and it's continued with player development, and it seems like the recruiting trail is hot. Kentucky is walking off the courts with 4.4 seconds to go. And heading to the locker room, and there's just five guys in blue jerseys left. So they've conceded, I guess, at this point, as Washington takes a shot off the window, and it goes, and it will count. And it's a two-point win for Arkansas. They beat then number one, Auburn. They've now beaten number six, Kentucky. And they have won 13 of their last 14. What a game, and what a finish. All righty, coming to the back end of the episode, we're going to recap the red-white game from Sunday. But start things off, the one guy who I was too lazy to cover in last week's podcast about this new Razorback basketball team was Mr. Jalen Graham. Graham came to Arkansas from Arizona State. He's an all-Pac-12 second-team nominee who averaged 10 points per game last season with five boards and one block. Well, he took being left off the pod personally because he played very, very well on Sunday during the red-white game. But let's jump, in, let's jump into some of the takeaways from the game that I have after research and watching the highlights from Sunday. First off, probably the largest crowd ever to attend a red-white scrimmage. We had 5,100, and this is during fall break. This is another sample size to evaluate the team after the European tour and before two exhibition games prior to the regular season starting up, where wins and losses are counted on November 7th. Musselman also added that he was pleased with the environment, especially with Ron Holland being in town and the students being on fall break. Musk said he was going through an adjustment, in quotes, an adjustment period when it came to the culture of hard work at Arkansas. And honestly, he hardly saw the four in Europe. He played majority of the first game, but I think he might have played six minutes in total the next three. But Duke came in with bad intentions on Sunday. Had a game-high 25 points on 10 of 11 shooting. What I was most excited about was his versatility. He's got great footwork. 
anywhere from the high post to the low block, back to the basket, face-up game. <clears throat> he has soft touch around the rim, great footwork, like I said. He also hit a three, which is something he's only done once in his entire collegiate career. And Musk says he has the ability to shoot it, and yeah, we're not going to have him shooting it a lot. But he has the ability to shoot it so we can keep defenses honest with it. He also showed his athletic ability on the defensive end with two nice blocks off the glass and his on-ball defense along with his ball screen defense. But, you know, with everyone, there's there's areas to improve on him, though, such as rebounding, what that'll come. Trying to improve the rebounding of a 6'9 athlete is pretty freaking easy to do. All in all, <clears throat> he's an all-Pac-12 player from Power 5 League. He has a ton of potential. If he can build on Sunday's performance, he's 100% going to have a prominent role in the Hogs rotation this season. Now we can start talking about the real fun stuff in Europe. We all saw the potential in Anthony Black. And this season we better enjoy him because he's going to be making lots of lots of NBA money in 365 days from now. So what I've learned about A.B. is in, in just about these young, highly tied recruits in general is that most young guys are focused on scoring and how they can impact the game mainly on the offensive end. But A.B. is an exception. He's 6'8", about 200 pounds. He's not your stereotypical College won, but this allows him to impact the game in a variety of ways, and this is why I believe he stands out amongst all the other freshmen. Sure, you can look at his four points on Sunday, which all came from the charity stripe, and have your skepticisms and bitch all you want to, but he also had nine assists, nine boards, three blocks, one steal, and only one turnover. Talk about a stat sheet stuffer. I'll take that stuff. The The scoring will come. I mean... Passing-wise, he's way ahead of his years. I'm sorry, he displays that in his ability to operate in a pick-and-roll, pass his teammates open. I know that sounds wrong, but it's right. It's a rare ability to do. He has he drops nice pocket passes off pick-and-rolls. He can get into the teeth of the defense and use his height to skip one-handed passes after shooters that are rolling back off the ball screen or in the corner. A.B. made Nick Smith Jr. pretty uncomfortable on the defensive end with his ability to rebound, switch any offensive action, and when he switched on to Nick Smith Jr., his length and active hands made it hard for NSJ to get a look that he liked. And I think these two guys going at each other in practice is only going to help them both get better. I was watching the Redeem team the other night with Kobe Bryant, the late Kobe Bryant, and LeBron James, and all the other guys like Dwayne Wade and Melo would talk about how, you know, at the time both of them were being rumored as the best players in the NBA, but you don't want them to hit heads on that. So you try to keep him separated as much as you can, then let him then let him go at it in five on five. Anyway, Musselman spoke very highly of AB, saying, in quote, he's really unique. There's not many players in college basketball like Anthony. There's probably not going to be many point guards who are going to be better rebounders. There's probably not going to be many point guards that are going to block as many shots as he does from the perimeter. <clears throat> His assist total, I mean, he thrives off passing the passing the basketball. He's gonna be one of the nation's assist leader, he's just unique. He's not like any normal point guard because you're talking about a six eight point guard who's a really willing passer. You can look over the last several years, there's not many college basketball players who can do what he can do, end quote. Now we talk about Nick Smith Jr. because that's who's going to get majority of the eyeballs, at least at the beginning of the season. But he had a slow start, but he turned it around on the stretch. He led the white team back in the ball game late in the game, in which he showed his ability to be a closer for the Hawks, which he's going to have to be because we're going to be in some tight games. He's going to have to kind of serve as that J.D. Note role as our closer. But Nick Smith Jr., he was over 6 in the third quarter. Next, we got Trayvon Brazil, who I'm most excited about. And 
Yes, he seemed to have some dry spells, but he had some flashes that reminded everyone of who he was or the type of player he was when he was in Europe. He only had four points through the first three quarters, but he came in that final quarter pissed off, and he played like it. Started off the fourth quarter by putting one on A.B. and Jalen Graham's head top, hit a corner three. Then that next possession got a steal, came down, had a nice Eurostep layup in the closing minutes. He finished with 13 points and five boards. Now, Ricky Council. Dude's raw. Got a lot of raw ability. Took some ill-advised shots, some out-of-control attacks to the rim. But the potential's there, and you can clearly see it. When when my guy's aggressive and gets downhill, good luck slowing him down. He had a nasty dunk to close the third quarter, and he finished the game with some nice, nice finishes at the rim. Now the Mitchell Twins, who are going to be a very, very vital part of the team that no one's talking about, they showed some flashes of promise. Makai hit some jump hooks. And has some nice touches around the rim. He finished with six points, five boards, and two blocks. Then Mikel <clears throat> knocked down two 15-footers from the elbow, had one dunk, finished with eight points, five boards, and showed his ability to pass the ball. He had four assists. Hawks took care of the ball better Sunday than we normally are accustomed to. We only had nine turnovers for both squads, and both squads also had 14 assists. Turnovers is always an area of improvement, just controlling the basketball, winning the turnover matchup, I don't care who you are, you always got to work on it. I feel like we can be much more solid in this department this season. We we got a lot of solid ball handlers, more than we've had the past two years. And I feel this way, this is going to sound dumb, but if we can take care of the ball against each other with all the length and range and athleticism we have, we're going to be okay. We're also going to create some havoc on the defensive end too. The squad's got the capability of being elite in transition this season. And I know I've talked about how perimeter shooting is a struggle it has been for the past two years. <clears throat> but the Razorbacks shot 22%, just 7 of 31 from beyond the arc on Sunday, which is just not good. Shooting is what it is. Nick Smith Jr. and Pinion each hit two apiece. Brazil, Graham, and Walk-On Cade are begassed each hit one. Anthony Black, Ricky Council, Barry Dunning, and Jordan Walsh were the only other guys who attempted a three, and all of them combined for 0 for 8. Excuse me, you can incorporate all the shooting drills you want with players putting in extra time shooting, but that's all you can do as a coach. And Musk agreed, essentially agreed with that, adding that, quote, we are not a great three-point shooting team. It's not going to change. I would love to tell you that we're going to knock those down, but there's only, but there's way too much body of work right now that we struggle from beyond the arc, end quote. While we've had success without being a good three-point shooting team, the recipe for success has been free throws attempted and having a stifling defense, which fits the profile for this group but this does concern me a little bit because teams will quickly zone us and force us to shoot I don't care how creative we are in creating looks for others or how we can get into the teeth of the defense we're gonna have to be able to knock down some threes or else we're going to be extremely one-dimensional last couple notes Pinion finished with 12 points and five boards which honestly shocked me a lot must also added that the key to him carving out his role this season is going to be his growth on the on the defensive end. Kamani had eight points, nine boards, and seven fouls. I don't know how the hell that happened. Barry Dunning had a good game. was very quiet, though. Contested a lot of shots. Moves well off the ball. Has a very high basketball IQ. He only had four points. Now, Jordan Walsh, everyone's probably wondering why I haven't talked about him yet. He's very, very gifted. Got a lot of raw ability, and the athleticism is there. You can see it. But he's got a lot of growing to do. Even on the defensive end, he looked pretty lazy. Um, he got back cut a few times, but you know th- he'll be okay. It must know how to get the best out of his guys, and with all the raw ability he has, the sky's the limit for him. 
And Jordan Walsh, I know a three ball didn't fall, but every single one of them looked good from what I could tell. He finished with four points and six boards. Darren Ford was two for 10 from the field and 0 for three from three. What has improved is his handle compared to what we saw over the summer. He had no turnovers. He's very tough, aggressive on both ends, and can get to the rim very easily. But he needs to figure out how to finish better. He got a shot blocked four times. But all in all, it's a scrimmage. There's no need to overreact. Trust Muss. Allow him to figure this team out, which he has shown us he can absolutely do each year he's been here. Do we have a lot to work on? Absolutely. Did we think we'd have everything figured out by October? I'd hope not. The sky's the limit for this team, and I'm excited to watch where we can take this thing. Alrighty, well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Views from the Hill. Once again, I appreciate all the love and support you guys have given the podcast. It's made this podcasting journey a lot of fun. Now, where you guys could help me out is whenever you listen to the episode on Spotify, please give it a good review, preferably a five-star review. We're closing in on 1,000 listens to the podcast. We're less than 300 away. It's a pretty cool milestone. Didn't really think about ever getting to 1,000, so that's cool. But lastly, enjoy the Fukin bye week. I think Hog fans need it for our stress levels, and the players need it for their bodies to get healthy. But next time I see y'all, we'll be previewing Auburn to close out the Hogs' three-game road trip. I love you guys, and I'll see you next week.